0: You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Denim Audio Network. Well, hello and welcome to The Way Home Podcast. I'm so glad to be with you. This is Dan Darling, your host. And we are back with a really interesting and important guest with us. But before we join our guest, I want to again make you aware of my new book called Agents of Grace, How to Bridge Divides and Love as Jesus Loves. This book talks about Christian unity. What is it? What isn't it? Also talks about Jesus' request, his command in John 17 that we be known to the world by our love for each other. What does it mean to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? What does love require? I share a lot of my personal story in this book, how God has helped me forgive when I've been hurt by folks' deep betrayals, hurt by the church, how Not to Be Cynical, How to Have Joy, Even in the Midst of, of Scandal and People Around Us Disappointing Us and All of Those Things. Uh, I think you'll enjoy this book. Uh, it comes out from Zondervan on May 9th, but you can pre-order it wherever you buy books. would love for you to do that. Okay, our next guest is my friend Michael Sobolik. Michael is really one of the sharpest uh, people I know when it comes to the area of foreign policy. Michael, for a long time, worked in the Senate, worked for uh, several senators, and worked specifically on foreign policy. And now he works at a foreign policy think tank where he really helps people navigate some of the more thorny issues of the day. Foreign policy is one area that I think Christians perhaps may be less informed about and just are truly trying to grapple with how should we think as Christians. So Michael joins me. Michael is a, a fellow in Indo-Pacific Studies in uh, at the American Foreign Policy Council. And I asked him a lot of questions. The war in Ukraine, why should we be involved? Should we be involved? And just overall, how should Christians think about these conflicts? And how should we urge our leaders to act? So I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Michael. Sobolik. Well, I'm glad to have on the podcast my friend uh, Michael Sobolik, who is a fellow in Indo-Pacific Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council, former staffer on on the Senate side, I believe, for a long time, and just generally super knowledgeable about foreign policy and all those kinds of things. And so, wanted to have Michael on to talk about a a few issues in the world today. So, Michael, thanks for for joining me, man.
1: Dan, it is a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So,
0: I want to start with the most obvious question. You know, America right now is assisting We're providing financial backing weapons and, you know, support to the country of Ukraine in its war against Russia. For those who, who, who kind of maybe aren't as uh, fluent in foreign policy or steeped in foreign policy, just average regular Americans who are like, you know, why, why is America involved in this? Why should we be involved you know, people are nervous about this escalating, all this kind of things. Maybe set the tone about why this is such an important time in terms of NATO, in terms of Europe and history and all that kind of thing.
1: Sure. So I'll I'll lay my my cards on the table here first. I'm a millennial. I'm 34 years old. So everyone who's listening... We all have these different frames of reference for how we understand history and how we interpret what's happening today in the context of history. So for me, I was born in 1988. So I was super young in the 90s. But I am told, and as I pour through government documents from the 90s, America was at the pinnacle of its power when the Berlin Wall crumbled and the Soviet Union collapsed subsequently in 1991. I remember that. In 1991... From then on, the United States started to believe a few things about the world. We started to believe that history had fundamentally changed, that somehow democracy was unassailable, that it was on this triumphant march and that history had ended. There's a really famous article from like, oh gosh, like 1994 or something. I forget the exact year, but history has ended or something like that. Francis uh, Fukuyama, basically, right? You Riffle. got it. Yep. Good old Francis Fukuyama. He, he's a brilliant guy. Uh, and I enjoy reading his stuff, but I think he got that really big idea wrong. And you saw policymakers start to internalize this, both Republicans and Democrats, over the subsequent decades. Like mm-hmm. there was this belief that there were no longer any trade offs, that we could have completely free trade and completely open economy and society and all that stuff without any negative follow-on effects on our security. Mm. And if you look at what's happening today in Ukraine, you see the resurgence of not only a great power, great power competition, and like China is obviously a huge part of that too, but you see this rise of imperialism. And imperialism is a word that Americans haven't really talked about in decades But, like, Dan, what we are seeing right now in Ukraine is the attempt of Vladimir Putin to reconstitute imperialist Russia. Like He's on record saying the demise of the Soviet Union was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century, and it's his mission in the 21st century to rebuild it. So we are living in destabilizing times right now.
0: Mm. You know, it's so interesting because... If you think about it, 2023, I don't want to say we're having a replay of the 20th century, but it's so eerily familiar in so many ways. And what I find fascinating, Michael, is um, people have less memory of how dominant and uh, the Soviet Union was, of Soviet communism. I, I grew up in the 80s. So I was there when the communism, you know, Iron Curtain fell, the Berlin Wall fell. We couldn't believe that anything like that would actually ever happen. But now, you know, so many years since that, we almost sort of, you know, underestimate how how bad communism was, number one. And then I think we also underestimate, it would seem, you know, the wars in the 20th century and wars of aggression, you know, Hitler and and Mussolini sort of, going through Europe and taking countries and people not having the courage to stop them before it was too late. So I wonder if that's kind of framing a little bit of, that's a little bit of our framework. A lot of questions people ask, I think most Americans still favor us helping Ukraine, but sometimes I feel like the conversation in this about Ukraine is, has forgotten the fact that Russia illegally invaded this democracy, right? And they're trying to defend their own nation and, and so just talk about that perspective here that, you, you know, why it's as Christians, we believe it's a just war. It's wise for us to assist uh, the people
1: of Ukraine. Sure. So uh, war is one of those things that gets batted around pretty carelessly in our culture and in our, in our society some of the best movies that have ever been made, in my opinion, are, are war films. But even that serious contending with warfare is not a substitute for actually being in the middle of it. And clearly, if you are enlisted and uh, or in, in the case of Ukraine, you're pulled into this conflict to defend the survival of your country. This nothing is theoretical anymore. Nothing is idealized like this is reality. Either you win or you are eliminated and you die. And and again, Americans today have next to no frame of reference for that type of existential issue. We are isolated from the rest of the world by the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. And we also have the luxury of being the world's most powerful nation. But for a nation like Ukraine, that is at the foothills of Russia, they are vulnerable and they were attacked. As you say, I completely agree with you. Theirs is a war where they did not start this. They did not instigate this. Vladimir Putin instigated this. And as Christians, when we talk about warfare, warfare is is a sorrowful part of our existence on earth. Uh, This is not the way that God intended life to be. Warfare is not part of his perfect plan. And yet, in scripture, you, you see time and time again the language that God uses when he talks about how he views evil, he talks about it in terms of warfare, his response to it. And just, just read Revelation 19, uh, one of the most powerful passages in all of scripture with Christ returning as a conquering king on top of a white horse leading the legions of heaven. Right. Um, but the, the Bible is also very careful with how it talks about warfare. And there are plenty of examples in the Old Testament of warfare that is unjust. And I think this is one of the biggest questions for us as Christians, how do we separate just wars and unjust wars? And there's a whole bunch of theology on this that I am not equipped to walk your listeners through, although I would go so far as to commend St. Augustine as a good starting point, but I, I would hope we could all agree on at least one thing. When you're a nation that has not provoked war and you are attacked by a stronger aggressive power That should not be a tough call for anybody, especially if it's in our interest as America to defend that weaker nation. We can have debates about how much, how long, Like those can be fair questions. What I don't think is a fair question is who's in the right and who's in the wrong. That is blatantly obvious.
0: Yeah. And and, and there are, you you know, I, I do want to come back to there are fair questions people ask You know, I'm going to put my cards on the table. I think we should help Ukraine because I think not only are they an ally being attacked by an invader, an imperialist, Russia, there's a lot of atrocities taking place that people we cannot look away from. But also it's in our best interest because in my view, if we stop Russia in Ukraine then maybe we keep them from going to a NATO ally where we will have to commit troops. And you know, maybe the assessment that Russia would continue on through Europe is wrong. Maybe they're weaker. But it doesn't seem like we should take that risk. And the ability to stop Russia and Ukraine without committing our own troops seems like a really good opportunity. I mean, obviously, Michael, you know, and we know we're realists that you can't there's a lot of atrocities going around on in the world. We can't, as Americans, we can't intervene in every situation. We probably shouldn't, but there are situations where we can, right, and where it is in our interests where we're both the humanitarian and the, you know, the um,
1: the sort of injustice align with our interests, right? I, I think you're right, Dan, and and you can even take that a step further. Uh, It's not just the issues of the NATO countries, uh, the Baltics in particular, that are right on the receiving end of uh, Russia's appetite for territory. It's not just that. And it's not even just the rest of Europe. How we respond in Ukraine matters because there's another power in Asia, in East Asia, that has their own revisionist appetites, talking obviously about China right now. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, a lot of the smaller nations throughout the Indo-Pacific, whether you're talking about Singapore or the Philippines or Malaysia uh, or Vietnam, uh, (laughs) keep on going down the list. But a lot of these countries, it's been really interesting. They have played their cards in the Ukraine context very carefully, for two re- at least for two reasons. Number one, a lot of them have their own relationships with Russia, particularly Vietnam, which is heavily reliant on Russia for their defense goods, for their entire defense ecosystem and their industrial base that supports their military, rely on Russian parts, so they can only go so far here, and India is in a very similar position. But the second reason that they're watching this very closely is because all of them know that not only do they live in the shadow of Beijing, their neighborhood could devolve into a conflagration easily when it comes to Taiwan. And all of these nations are watching so closely, not only what Russia is doing in Ukraine, but what the United States is doing. Because Hmm. I mean, the bottom line for Taiwan, Dan, is that the only hope that Taiwan has of fending off any sort of an attack from China is if the United States is there, not just arming them, but actually a part of the fight. And this Mm. is one of the biggest question marks of the day and age that you and I and all of your listeners live in. What is the future of this tiny little island in East Asia? Because so much of the security of the Indo-Pacific and if I may be so bold, whole lot of the world rests on it. So what's happening in Ukraine is prologue for a lot of stuff that could play out.
0: Mm. That's such a great point. And I, I want to camp out there a little bit. And then I want to circle back and ask you how you think the Ukraine-Russia war might end. And then I want to talk about China. So I have a lot of stuff I want to ask you about, Michael. Because, I mean, it's rare that I have a foreign policy expert you know, available to to ask these questions. But I have a th- I mean, I've, I've read this theory and I somewhat agree with it. Do you believe that Vladimir Putin sort of saw the collapse of Afghanistan in our our chaotic and feckless, I would say, withdrawal and made the calculation that this was the time to strike in Ukraine because the United States was in a very vulnerable position or kind of a position where we're backing away from the rest of the world? I wonder if you could rewrite history, which you can't. Had we kept a residual force in afghanistan and that had not been a collapse if putin may not have invaded ukraine maybe he still would have but what do you think about that theory and that's sort of i think about that when i think about what you just mentioned with taiwan that if we show weakness it'll embolden
1: china to invade taiwan yeah so a a few thoughts on afghanistan number one Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, the uh, the, the big dictator in China, uh, both of them, and, and I, I would probably include in there the Ayatollahs in Iran as well, uh, and Kim Jong-un in North Korea, all of these guys were watching how we were going to handle Afghanistan uh, because they're all, some at the margins, some very substanc- uh, substantially are trying to remake this post-Cold War American world. And I do believe that our gross mishandling of what happened in Afghanistan not only did it not help Ukraine, I do think it probably emboldened Putin. I think that is a fair assumption. Uh, If you look at how we left, it was chaotic. We were not communicating with our allies. We left our Afghan partners stranded and abandoned with little to no warning at the mercy of the Taliban. And we know the Taliban is not merciful it mm. sent a terrible message, not only to our strong allies and partners, but to nations like Ukraine who are on the chopping block. And I think another thing that sent an emboldening message to Moscow was our, uh, was the Biden administration's unwillingness to sanction uh, the Nord Stream 2 energy pipeline between Russia and Germany. Mm. That conversation can get a little wonky. If you want to go down that hole, we can. But suffice it to say, we were sending a number of messages beforehand that uh, maybe Putin misinterpreted what Washington was trying to say. But I think we made some pretty serious missteps. And uh, I think the biggest reason for these mistakes we're making, again, we have lived for a long time with this belief that we can have it all, that conflicts between two nations can be resolved through conversation and diplomacy and good faith negotiations. And there seems to be this belief, this really stubborn belief in a lot of American policymakers that if we just keep the door open, we can can get a negotiated settlement and avoid war and diplomacy is gonna be the thing that wins the day. We have got to start accepting but there are some people in this world who control very powerful militaries that are not interested in negotiating with the United States. On the margins, perhaps, if it furthers their broader ambitions. But we live in a world where, whether it's Putin or Xi or others, are not interested in a negotiated settlement that furthers the interests of the United States. And I think there are a lot of people in D.C. who believe that they can make it work, and it didn't work. And we have got to start recognizing reality
0: Mm, mm.
1: that's really good i mean that's good that's a great
0: great point all these things are interrelated and talk a little bit about two questions one how do you see the ukraine russia war ending if you if you could you know is there a possibility that there's some kind of negotiation that doesn't leave ukraine you know that that Obviously, leaves Ukraine with their sovereignty and their their country, but also uh, Putin has a way of saving face, if you will, to his own people. I don't even know how that would work. But then also, before we talk about that, it does seem leading up to this moment that uh, the United States, in a series of presidents, Republicans and Democrats, really kind of let Putin do his thing in some ways, so, like we we sort of wink and nod when Putin would invade countries and take territories and do all these sorts of things, uh, sort of giving him the impression that he could do what he wants, right? So talk about that aspect of how we've gotten here in that respect. And then secondly, about how you see this thing, if there's a possibility for this thing to wind down, because I do think, even though I'm very for what we're doing, I think there are genuine concerns about escalation, about nuclear war, about, uh, you know, all those things.
1: So so talk about both of those. Yeah. I'm really glad you asked the question of how we got here because, I mean, listen, if we are going to chart a better path, you can't do that without a postmortem. So and, and unfortunately for America, this is a bipartisan problem. Go back to. Oh gosh what year was it when george w bush said i looked into putin's eyes and saw goodness that might have been 2001 i can't Mm -hmm. remember but yes man talk about a quote that i'm sure the former president wishes he could have back uh then look at the obama administration hillary clinton tried to literally reset relations with with putin I will never forget, this was in my, fir- my first year as a staffer on Capitol Hill, Dan, I, I will never forget the new- when the news hit about uh, Putin invading Crimea uh, mm-hmm. and the quote from then Secretary of State John Kerry, something along the lines of, this is 18th century behavior, this is not how modern nations behave. <laughs> we can scold despots until the cows come home But this apparently is how some nations do behave in the 21st century and clinging to a past ideal isn't going to help anything. But then going from the Obama administration to the Trump administration, uh, oh, gosh, like talk about a complicated case there. Trump seemed to have this weird relational affinity for Putin. And yet the policy of his administration and Congress to Congress's credit was incredibly hawkish towards Russia. So there's a big cognitive dissonance as well. Mm-hmm. So like, if we got here with a lot of help from both sides, or maybe a lot of mistakes from both sides. To your question of how does this end? I don't think anybody knows. I'll, I'll, maybe a few scenarios here. Number one, if the United States really puts our foot on the accelerator in terms of arming Ukraine promptly and quickly training their like we have Ukrainian pilots right here, right now in the US training on F-16s. This I mean, I think this mm-hmm. probably should have been done a while ago, but we're doing it. If we can reduce the gap and the lag between the request and the approval and the training, I think the Ukrainians have a great shot of winning this war. And I think for Ukraine, like Zelensky has been incredibly incredibly clear winning means retaking all of ukraine including crimea and the uh, ejection of all of russia's military the ukrainians have proven themselves to be heroically tough fighters i don't think they're lacking in will or resolve they're lacking in capability uh the the russians outnumber them but the russians are so poorly trained like it's, it's it's almost tragic to see these young Russian guys who are conscripted at gunpoint and are kept in Ukraine at gunpoint and the training they've received is laughable. The Russian military is exposed as inept and poorly trained. They are beatable, but they are not beatable within a good timeframe if we do not arm Ukraine quickly and we have got to get some of these governments in Western Europe to actually care about what's happening i'm talking mainly about germany uh if you talk about a government that has been exposed as really not looking so great over the past year or so uh it's berlin Uh, they have a whole host of issues not just with their russia policy but their china policy and they are a parable Mm. of what happens when you allow yourselves to get too economically intertwined with people who are actually your adversaries but I, i do think it's winnable dan and while I do also think that there are some reasonable questions on the margin about oversight for the aid, making sure it's not going towards that stuff, I also don't mm-hmm. see any evidence that it is being misappropriated or that there's any like rampant corruption involved with our aid to Ukraine. There's a lot of rhetoric about that, but I just don't see good evidence of it. I think they're using the aid well, and I think we got to keep helping them.
0: Yeah. And actually, you know, that's one of the narratives. And I think it's, you know, it's good and right for Americans to be concerned about where their money goes. And I think that's part of what what makes us great as Americans that we, you know, those who govern, govern at the consent of the governed. And so we have a say in that. But I, you know, if you read a little bit about, I read an article, I think that ERLC put out that talked about, I think there's 117 different kind of inspectors that look through the aid to make sure that nothing is misappropriated and I don't think anyone's arguing that Ukraine is a perfect country by any stretch they have their issues and their issues with corruption like a lot of those emerging democracies do so there's no defending that you know it does seem like this is such an important fight uh, can you talk a little bit about why NATO is important you know for me growing up the 20th you know, in the '80s, NATO was just a thing. You know, reading about World World War II, I think we take it take for granted the the peace that Europe had, and this umbrella of peace for all these years that NATO was responsible for post World War II uh, to the present. But I think if you're growing up and you're younger, you you just sort of assume that, and you might think, "Why are we part of NATO? Why does this even matter? Why don't we just worry about our own country?" So. Maybe explain why that matters for America's own security. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So
1: I think this is a fantastic case study for anyone who is young, who is listening to this podcast. And by young, I mean, particularly Gen Zers. NATO hasn't really been a big part of the life of the American people until like very recently. So it's natural, I think, for a lot of people to have questions about What is this thing? Why are we still a part of it? Or aren't the Soviets like dead and gone? Like we defeated those guys a long time ago. And I think this is, I think questions like that should be an invitation for exploration because I think it's really easy for us in this digital online social media age that we live in to form opinions so quickly and to have question pop up why do we're in nato and then have a lot of the media like domestic politics which is increasingly populist on the right and to come to a conclusion very quickly of we should be investing at home instead of investing in abroad and if people want to make that argument that's fine but i do think all of us are well served when we have a question like that understanding the purpose of an institution before we decide we want to dismantle that institution. So NATO, what is it? Why does it matter? Mm-hmm. NATO is the textbook example of something called collective security. Now, usually the way history has worked since, I guess, the Treaty of Westphalia, and, and like if, if you abstract it for like the entirety of human life, most nations are responsible for their own safety. But every now and then, you will have a threat that is so gargantuan and threatens so many people that you'll have this overlap of shared threat assessment. Where during the Cold War, the Soviets were lurching into Europe, and they, uh, they had already lurched into <laughs> Eastern Europe, and that's why you had the whole Iron Curtain. You know That's what it is. And collective security is this idea of, listen we hang together where we hang separately. It's kind of like the founding fathers talking about the declaration of we're in this together. And it's the exact same idea with NATO. Western Europe needed a security guarantor that was powerful enough to stand up to the Soviets, which is the United States. And Western Europe needed uh, to have their own uh, security decisions pulled in a way where they could talk about these things together. Because if you have one great power, Russia, picking off all these individual countries, that's advantage to Moscow, disadvantage to the West. So NATO is this commitment for all the members that an attack on one member is an attack on everybody in that, in that alliance. And that's the famous Article 5 provision of NATO. It has only been invoked once now that was September 11th, 2001. So I think before Americans denigrate NATO, we should recognize that we've been the beneficiaries of NATO because we were attacked on 9-11 and you saw NATO come to our support in our response. So, yeah, NATO continues to be really mm. important today. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I'm so glad you, you
0: laid that, out those parameters. I think that's important f- for us.
1: Michael Soboluk, so glad
0: that you joined me. We're going to put links in the show notes where people can read your work, both at the institution that you are at, but also places like Providence Journal, which I encourage folks and I encourage my students at Texas Preppers College to read one of the great places and other places that you're writing. Follow you on Twitter. Uh, we'll put all those links there but michael thank you for what you do thank you for serving the country there in uh, the nation's capital thank you for listening to this edition of the way home podcast with daniel darling for more information you can visit danieldarling.com If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at at Dan Darling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast.